You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called Covered in Dust, a journey through the book of Matthew, looking at the life, ministry, and relationship that Jesus had with his disciples that would later bring the kingdom of heaven through normal, everyday people. Thanks for joining us. Like I said, uh, baby Oliver is about 98% uh, potty trained. And uh, which means he is uh, nine times out of ten, does a good job, sometimes he doesn't. Unfortunately, I was at the Y the other day with him. He did not want to go into the daycare center. He has a little stranger danger. If you were two, you would too. You know what I'm saying? And uh, he did not want to go in there. And uh, he wouldn't, Kyra wouldn't put up with it, but I did. I just took him with me. That wasn't smart. That was my mistake number one. So I had all four kiddos with me uh, trying to hoop it up uh, over at the Y. And uh, next, thing, next thing I know, I look over, and dads, it's not a good move when you're there with the two-year-old and he does not have his pants on and he's running around crazy. That is not, not a good look. So we're working on it. There's, a, there's nuances to the potty training. It's not just, just doing the potty. It's also keeping your pants on when you're in public. That's another big thing. Uh, if you wanted to follow me on Instagram, I had a great picture of him with the, um, the flippers on at the gym. And uh, so at least you get a, get a good photo op for it. Um, this, this series has been all about uh, discipleship. Um, the series in, in Matthew um, from the beginning when we started in January has been about just the, the active question of, of trying to understand, not through culture, but through the scriptures, um, what it means to be a disciple. Um, I've heard it said before that Jesus didn't come to make Christians. He came to make followers, to make people that um, the, the series has been called covered in dust, that are covered in the dust of their rabbi that are 24-7 consumed with, with, with who God is and allowing um, just the, the word, uh, not just the scriptures, but the, the pneuma word, the, the, the rhema and the logos, transform us. Not that the culture would transform us, but that it would transform us from the inside out. That was the language we used from the very beginning, is not just my head, Lord, but my heart, my motives, my attitude. Change me. To be a disciple is to be changed. To be a disciple is a methodus, is to be a learner. It's to be challenged. It's to know something and do something differently today than I did yesterday and to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is, this is what we're finding um, in, in these passages. And the four common invitations that we've, that we've found and, and laid groundwork for um, start in a certain place. Start at John the Baptist when, when John the Baptist heralds and makes this proclamation like, come and see. Just taste and see. Like, I'm not going to argue you about it. I'm not going to prove it to you. I'm not going to try and manipulate you or uh, intimidate you. I just want you to come and see how good he is. And so the story begins with these disciples. Like, they're like, if this is, if this is who you are and this is what you, what you can do, you can only come from one place. You can't be from this place. You have to be from another place. And, and at one point, when some people stop following him, he turns to Peter and he says, what are you going to do next? And he goes, where else am I going to go? I've seen you. I've seen you, not just with my physical eyes, but with my heart. I, like, understand who you are. And, and, and he teaches disciples to come and rest with him. He's like, look, when you follow me, I'm actually not like the rest of the world. I'm not trying to, like, take something from you. I'm not trying to, like, manipulate you or, or build up some army or kingdom. Like, I came here not to be served, but to serve. I came here to lay my life down as a ransom for you. And, and here's, the, here's the crazy part is even when you're not following me, I'm pursuing you. I want you to rest in the fact that you don't have to do anything or be anything or go anywhere for me to love you just where you are. And so my invitation is just to come and be. My invitation is for you to just sit and respond to the fact that God loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And there's nothing that you can change about that. 
There's, there's no disciple that, that can be birthed out of any other soil than the come and be invitation. And, and, and the disciples, because of his love, not for his love, begin to respond in his love and, and, and follow him to do the things that he does, to not just be passive, but to be participants. And so they, they're the ones that hand out the bread when he multiplies it on the hill. And some of the people were complaining. They were saying, your disciples are baptizing more people than you are. And Jesus says, that was my original intent, that, that my disciples wouldn't just be beers, that they would be doers of my word as well. And, and, and finally, we're in this passage today, which will continue on in the, in the run between Matthew 16 and Matthew 20, which is the invitation to ultimately come and die as a disciple. And, and that audience, much like this audience today, to, to leave it at just that promise would be stark and gloomy. But the journal question that we've been going through uh, week after week, it, it shows us that in dying, we're actually not losing. He's not taking our life from us. Rather, he's giving our life back to us for the first time. That, that the invitation to come and die, everything in us wants to run from it because it's so scary and because we've never had anyone that we could trust enough to lay our life down for other than Jesus. But, but Jesus is proving to us time and time again that if you could see me for who, you, who I really am, to see me is to know me, and to know me is to love me, and to love me is to be like me. And if you were to lay down your life on my account, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take anything from you that I wouldn't give back ten and a hundredfold to you. He says in the scriptures that anybody that would lose land or mothers or fathers or relationships on account of me will be given sixty and a hundredfold back in return. He's not, a, he's not a taker, he's a giver, and you cannot give who he is and and as we lay our lives down, this is what the journal question has been saying to us, is that as I lose my life, I actually gain it back. This is the beautiful transition of beauty for ashes. Jesus, where am I losing my life? This is where we respond to the message of come and die. Where am I losing my life so that I can save it? Or trying to save it, rather. In the effort to save it, how am I just losing it, really? Because it never amounts to anything unless it's unless it's installed into your kingdom. And then the question, where am I finding my life through losing it? Let me pray for us once more. So Jesus, in these, uh, as we read this passage in Matthew, God, as we've talked about losing life in light of relationships and people, uh, last week we talked about possessions, um, and, and this morning um, there's an ambition inside of us. There's a, de a desire for significance, importance, um, in, being included, being picked for the team. And, uh, and I ask that you would show us um, where that is in our heart, that we might lay it down and, and really get our life back um, in light of your cross, in light of your kingdom, in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you guys know I used to be a history teacher. Uh, I always liked U.S. history a lot more than world history. Uh, but one thing that I really liked about world history was the study of the Romans, because the Romans are an incredible civilization. We've never seen anything like it in, in human history and probably never will. <clears throat> the rise of power and affluence in the world, their ability not only to uh, control things militarily, but socially and politically and philosophically. Much of who we are, even as Americans, as Westerners, comes from uh, Roman thought. And, uh, and, and the Romans, they, they were significant in this way. There's lots of empires that have come and gone um, in, in the history of, of humanity. Uh, but one of the famous things that the Romans did was not only that they conquered things, but they culturalized things. Um, the, the Romans, uh, early on in, uh, in their legacy, 
would go to different areas uh, in their surrounding you know, neighborhood, neighbors there globally, and they would conquer places by military brute force, and there was nobody better than them at that time. And they at one time had their flag on you know, 23% of, of the planet. Um, but they ran into this issue because um, they would conquer a place, and they would go off and go conquer another place, and what would happen is they would come back to the place that they first conquered and realize that it would look the same as when they first conquered it. And so although they conquered it, nothing inside of what they had conquered had actually changed. And so, um, and so they, they, they began to change their philosophy about this thing. And actually, the reason why I'm talking about it is because it's where we get the word apostle. Like the original 12 disciples were called apostles, um, it, which actually just means sent ones in, in a very basic sense. But, but, the, but Jesus didn't come up with apostles, and apostles didn't exist in the Old Testament. Apostles came from the Greeks. It came from the Romans. Uh, and, uh, and this is actually the definition. I'll, I'll put it up on the screen, but this is kind of a longer, whimsical definition that I found online. But I, I, I think it very clearly communicates exactly what an apostle in the kingdom of Rome did and an apostle that we'll get to in the kingdom of Jesus does. But this is what an apostle is. An apostle is someone who is sent... Now follow me here with the commas. An apostle is someone who is sent from one place to another place to reproduce in that place what it was that they were sent from. So they're cultural transformers. They're changing the culture in a new place. So they're, they're reproducing the stuff that they came from in the place that they are going to, from, from the place that they are sent from. And until that place looks the same as the place they're sent from, um, their mission is not accomplished. They're sent from, from a place to make the new place that they have arrived to change so much so that it looks exactly like the place that they left. And so what the Romans discovered is that they couldn't just con conquer a place. They needed to culturize a place. And so they would send apostles that were basically like military generals, except they were not just military strategists. They were cultural strategists. They were cultural architects. And they would send in not only just armies and fleets, but they would send in musicians and teachers and philosophers and, and, and playwrights and, and cultural architects into the area until the place that they get, got to started to look like the place that they came from. Does that make sense? So the word apostle actually wasn't um, a, a Jesus word. It wasn't even an Old Testament word. Um, but Jesus, and some people may even believe that, that, that God was up to something there by creating that word so that Jesus could use it because we know that... <laughs> Caesar didn't come up with any words. Jesus comes up with all the words in the end. And, and the, the, the word culturally for the Romans was something that Jesus was able to quickly use to discern and to, to define what a disciple is. A disciple could have been, um, he could have used the word patriarch. The common word for a culture bearer or standard bearer or culture setter in the Old Testament would have been a patriarch, like an Abraham or a Moses, Moses or a Jacob. But Jesus is like, no, 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 that word's not what I want to use. I don't want to use patriarch. It could have been a priest. That was a common thing in the lineage of Aaron and, and in the Levitical code, like in, in, in that tradition, is to call the disciples, you guys are just priests. You guys are just caretakers. You know, you're here to pastor and shepherd and care for people. He could have used the word, uh, uh, um, he used the word um, priest. He could have used the word pastor. He could have used the word um, father figure. Or he could have used the word prophet. But none of these words seem to fit. Instead, Jesus uses the word apostle because a disciple is not just a learner, is a leader. And a disciple is somebody that's here to, to change culture. So the passage we look at today um, is a conversation that's about the topic of greatness. It's a topic, it's, it's a conversation about 
the topic of greatness. There's a, a book that was written, I think it was like the early 2000s, by a guy named Jim Collins that just busted off the shelves, named Good to Great. Um, and it was all about businesses and how businesses that succeeded succeeded and why businesses that stayed good just ended up being bad because they never became great or all that they were supposed to be. Um, it's a common word, and the disciples, you know, today, today we talk about it and sell books off, off the topic of greatness. And the disciples wanted to know about greatness, particularly because Jesus has been proclaiming uh, for the last two and three years that they've been following him about this great kingdom he's about to bring. And back in Matthew 14, when we started this segment about come and die, he has a specific conversation with the disciples, particularly Peter, about his personal greatness. He tells Peter, your name is Petra, which means small rock, but the faith that you just saw me of who I am as the Messiah is going to lead you to become greater than your name. You are going to be the rock, the capital R rock, in which I'm going to build the church. Not you, but your faith is going to be the rock on which I build the church. And then last week, we, we got into this conversation where Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler and he sends the rich young ruler home. And then the, the, the disciples are asking him, you know, like, are you going to send us home too? And, uh, and, 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 and Jesus is saying, no, because of your faith, because you've come to die to yourself, because you have followed me all into this point. He goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to establish you on the 12 thrones of Israel. There's going to be this greatness that's in you. And, but see, this greatness that, that, that the disciples are, are hearing about, it's different than the dictionary that Jesus is using for greatness. And so you can kind of see it in this run that we're going to see in Matthew chapter 20 when they, when they come to him asking about the topic, the topic of greatness. Jesus realizes that although that the, the disciples are following Jesus physically, like they're following him from town to town and they do have his dust on, on him and, and he's, they're, they're quoting him and they're following him, Although that they're disciples of Jesus, they're actually more culturalized by their world than by him. That, that as they talk about this conversation of greatness, that they're, they're not actually being culturalized by Jesus as much as they're being culturalized by the Romans. They're being apostolatized by the Romans. They're being led by the Romans. And this conversation of greatness really brings up a really important um, discourse. So this is what it says. If you want to look at it in, in your Bibles, on the phone, on the uh, iPad that I lost, I don't know where it is, or on the screen, it's Matthew 20, verse 20. And it's the story about the sons of Zebedee, these two brothers that have been following Jesus up until this point. And so um, what it says is that the mother of Zebedee's sons comes to Jesus and kneeling down asks a favor of him. So there's another rendition of this in the book of Mark where uh, it says that the, the disciples, actually Zebedee, the two brothers Zebedee, actually send the mother to go and talk to Jesus. Like it's not just... Um, a random happenstance that it was of the mother's own volition, like, like it was the disciples' motive and agenda to send the mom to kind of get something out of Jesus. Okay, and so regardless of, of, of why she makes her move, she goes up to Jesus and asks him the question. He says, what do you want? He asks, and she says, hey, like, I want my kid, who doesn't want their kids to do great? Like, I want my kids, you know, to go to the NBA and make a bunch of money and you know, go to college for free and get scholarships. Nobody wants their kids to crash and burn. Everybody wants their, their kids to launch out well. And she's like, hey, Jesus, um, you seem like a really nice guy. And you're really charitable and kind, even to women. And people that in our day don't do, do that. You know, they're not respectful to women. It seems like you, 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 you care for people. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come towards you and ask you, Jesus, like, of this whole greatness thing of the 12 tribes, like, is there a way that, like, my two sons' tri uh, tribes, you know, their, their, their two um, thrones are actually going to be higher than the others. Is that possible that I could just like slip a good in word with you in there? And isn't that funny? Like that, that's a very human thing, right? Because it's not that 
it's, it's not that we just want to have good things. There's something in us competitively that wants to have things that are better than other people. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I never have you over to my house to, like, show you my library card. Like, hey, guys, look at this library card. I'm special. Like, look how VIP I am because I have this library card. Like, nobody's showing off their library card. They show off Super Bowl rings. They, they'll invite you over to the house to show you the new car or the new iPhone or whatever it is. They want, it's like people, it's, it's in our innate sense that we don't just want good things. We want better things. We want to be able to look at the person next to us like, no, I, I mean, I know that I have like a throne in heaven and everything and I'm going to be like eternally remembered, but that's not quite good enough for me. I want my throne to be a little bit higher than the other two. It reminds me of this. Um, uh, do you guys remember watching the Christmas story with um, that dad who wins the leg lamp? He's like, this must be some sort of award. It's glorious. It's beautiful. And it's so, the whole joke is like, it's so stupid. He got a leg lamp. But it's just because he got a, a, a letter in the mail that said it was an award that nobody else got. All of a sudden, his quote was, this is like the 4th of July. It's the most glorious thing ever. Look at this leg lamp. And, and, and it speaks, I think, to all of us is that we don't just want good things. We want things that are, that are better than the person next to us, that are better than the Joneses. And I, I think it, it connects with us in this way. And so he's, she's saying, is like, I, I know that they're going to get these 12 thrones, but can, can my guys have the best thrones? Can they have the ones the left and the right of you, Jesus? And so Jesus says it this way. Uh, you don't know what you're asking, woman. Jesus says to them, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And so, so test number one from these two disciples has failed. They're thinking, maybe Jesus responds and gives greatness and, and delegates greatness by way of charity or favoritism. Maybe it's not what you know, it's who you know, it's the person who asks first. Maybe it's the one who's the earliest bird that gets the worm. I mean, maybe it's just like getting in line. I mean, the first person in line at Best Buy on Black Friday gets the TV deal, and maybe that's the first person in line. I mean, if there's greatness to be had, Jesus, I want to know how to be great. I don't want to be the last picked on the team. I don't want to be left out. I want to be remembered. I don't want to be forgotten. I'm going to go to you and go ask you the question, like, can I get in line? Can I just show up? Can I be your favorite? Can I send somebody you have pity on? A woman in this case, in this culture, to, to ask for greatness. And he's like, that's not how greatness comes. He's like, you don't know what you're asking. Greatness doesn't come from favoritism and it doesn't come from charity. Greatness comes through the cup. Greatness comes through suffering. What we know from the end of the story, having been able to see the preview, the spoiler alert, is that, is that the cup that he's talking about refers to the prayer that he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, remember to his father, he says, let your will be done in my life. But if there's any other way to accomplish your will other than this way, I pray that you take this, what? This cup, this suffering, this bitter cup, this death away from me. And so Jesus preaches to them in a forecasted way, if they understand it or if they have ears to hear, we don't know. But he says to them, you don't get greatness through favoritism. Uh, greatness comes in the kingdom through suffering. Glory comes through suffering. Anytime there's glory, there's suffering. I saw uh, a t-shirt the other day that I think really epitomizes um, some of the uh, fallacy of this in our day. There's a, a great, fun-looking dude that I saw it on the street that had a, a T-shirt. It said, good vibes only. You know what I mean? I, I'm trying to, I feel old. I'm trying to like keep up with things, but I assume if I understand what a vibe is and what good it is, it's just the understanding of like, I only want good vibes around me. Like, I, I only want positivity around me. Like, this is, this is, my personal mission, this is what I believe is great. I, I'm here to be good, to have good vibes, to generate good attitudes and good vibes. It's like the Lego song that my kids all listen to that goes on and on on my Spotify account all the time. That's super annoying. And they're like, everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of it. Do you guys know this song? It's two weeks in a row that I've sang on stage, so I'm proud of myself. Um, 
But it's this, right, you know what I'm talking about. It's this idea that's like, you're awesome, and I'm awesome, and we're awesome, and as long as we treat each other awesome and speak to each other awesome, and everybody's got good vibes, and everybody's got a good attitude, then everything's going to be great. And Jesus is like, there's no, there's, no, there's no greatness without suffering. He would speak to us in our generation. He's like, he's like I love good vibes. I love peace, but peace, doesn't, peace is, is pricey. Peace comes at a cost. I know, I know we want to we want to accomplish great things, and I know we want to change the world, and I know we want to see social justice initiated, and I know we want to do great things. He's like, but great things don't come without a cost. He's like, do you want to to have greatness in the kingdom? There will be suffering. And and greatness, as as Jesus sees it, doesn't come through good vibes and good vibes only, and and just keeping things positive and being nice to people, you know, and, and making everybody feel good. No, he's like, no, no, greatness doesn't come from good vibes. Greatness comes from suffering. It comes from sacrifice. It comes from, from somebody laying down their life for somebody else, not getting credit for it, somebody doing invisible work, somebody getting blamed for something that wasn't their fault. That's where it comes from. Do you want to see where, where there's greatness that comes out of the earth? Then dig down and believe it. In, in every place of greatness and growth, you'll always see a dead seed. You'll always see somebody that had to sacrifice for it. There's no peace that comes for free. There's no joy that comes for free. There's no freedom that comes for free. There's no goodness that comes for free. We don't have a kingdom that comes from good vibes only. We come from a kingdom that comes from Gethsemane, that comes from, from death, from, comes from the bitter cup. And so, and so the, I don't know if they, if they understand it, but they're like, yeah, we're down with that. We can do that. <laughs> good vibes only, dude. Yeah, we can do that. We can. They answered, he's like, maybe you know it or maybe you don't, but you will. He says to James and John in that, in that series there, he's like, you will indeed drink from my cup. One of them will be crucified. The other one's going to get boiled. And, uh, and, and, and you will be good, great for those reasons. But then he says, he says this, and it's a bit of an aside, worth the mention at least, that, that he says um, you know, that, that greatness is, is a decision, and, and greatness comes through suffering. It comes through, through the bitter cup, but ultimately position. I want to read this to us here, and you can look on the screen as well, but your position, he says, your position is prepared by the Father. And, and I feel like at this passage, we, it might just tell somebody today, not all of us, that you know, there's, there's, this, there's this thing, I think, in our American culture, in our Roman culture, in our Greek culture, that says that, that we, can, we can do anything and be anything and go anywhere and be anyone that we want to be as long as we we, uh, we put our mind to it, and as long as we put enough oomph to it, as long as we put enough, put enough effort to it. I went to a, a, an NBA game, and you know when you watch, I watch a lot of basketball, so I tell a lot of basketball stories, but you see those people on the screen, and it's just, it's that tons of Zebedee thing inside of you. You're like, maybe I could play in the NBA. I mean, I'm only 35. Like, if I tried really hard and did a bunch of push-ups and go to the Y enough, I mean, like, you can do anything. Like my mom said, I can do anything that I put, that I put my mind to. There's a certain lot of effort by that. Actually, look at the Jim Collins quote. This is the opening quote of this book, uh, Good to Great, um, that I was talking about earlier. But this is kind of the hinge of the whole book. And I mention it because I think it's true. It's kind of true. But then there's also pieces of it that Jesus, I think, calls out. But this is what Jim Collins says, opening the book is the whole prospectus of the whole thing. He says, greatness is not actually a function, having studied a lot of businesses and those that went up and those that went down and so forth, uh, navigating all different times and, and circumstances. But he's like, across the board, if you look at the scatter point of the thing, that greatness is not a function of circumstance, really. Greatness is a decision. It's an internal choice. It turns out greatness is largely a matter of conscious choice and discipline. This is what I think uh, is at the core of a lot of American culture, of self-determination, of, of, of independence, of being a self, 
self-made person or a self-made woman or a self-made man. And, uh, but Jesus, Jesus kind of flies in the face of this. And he's like, we can choose to be faithful. We can choose to, to suffer even when it's hard. We can choose to be humble even when it hurts. We can choose to follow Jesus. But ultimately, it's the Father that puts us in the positions that we end up. And I, and I almost want to say to us this morning from this scripture, it's like I think some of us, we, we, uh, we get suffocated by the shadow of our own expectations about where we should be by, by now. And we look at other people on other social platforms, we look at where people are at our age, and like, how come we're not at this point? And, and I, think, I think America and I think our Western culture will tell us, like, greatness is a choice. Like, you can choose to take the steps you take, and I don't want to mitigate that at all. Certainly, I think that Jesus is saying we are accountable for the steps that we take, but ultimately, I think it's really good news that we rest in the fact that we're nowhere that the Father doesn't want us to be, that we are right where we need to be, right when we need to be, as long as we're following Jesus right where we are. Amen? The Father has positioned us in places, and as we follow Him, and we plant seeds, and we water, the Scriptures say in 1 Corinthians, that He's the only one that brings increase. So our job isn't to write our own job description and go take the next hill. Our job is to stay close to God, be abided in Him, follow Him, and He will describe and define the position that we're, that we're supposed to be. And that position is the only place, it is the promise, it is the only place that we would ever want to be, is right in the center of God's will. So this is what He says next. When the, when, the, when the ten hear about this, they get indignant. They're ticked off. They're like, that snake in the grass. He did what? While we were going down there to get that water, they went in there to snakes and tried to get first in line for the kingdom of God. I'm so angry at them. You know, they're super indignant about this. I know my kids will come home and have a great time. They'll be out with grandma going on roller coasters and eating cotton candy until they throw up or something. They're doing something great. And, and they'll come in and they'll check the trash can to see what food we've eaten while they've been gone. They'll be like, oh, what y'all eating in here? Cookout? What y'all doing? What y'all? Oh, y'all eating cookout when I'm gone? What's going on over here? So those snakes in the grass, they... They were waiting until we was asleep and they went up to Jesus and took our spots on the throne. We mad about that. So he did. And, and, so, and, so, and so Jesus is like, okay, all right, we have a problem here. Like, like, like y'all are following me. Y'all are Christian by name. You guys have, are, are believing that I'm the Messiah. It's quoted in, in 16. Like they understand you're God and you're following me, but your culture is not like my culture. Like, I can tell that the place that you're coming from is not like the place that I'm headed to. And the place that I'm from is not like the place that you're in. And there's a culture issue here. Like, there's a culture class. You guys are not seeing the thing the way that I'm seeing it. And, and, and where I come from, we don't, we don't behave this way. We don't act this way. And so this is what he, what he says to them. He's, he, he, he tries to explain it. And it's almost like, if you read it, like, he can't come up with a good example of what the kingdom of God is like even in a parable or even in like some sort of a analogy. So he actually has to point to something in the Romans and non-example the thing. Like he's got to be like, this is, this is what it's not like. Like I'm trying to explain what it is, but in order to explain what it is, I'm going to explain what it's not like. And he's like, this is what the Gentiles, and ultimately I think he's kind of indirectly saying they are doing, right? This is what saturates and permeates their culture. The Gentiles, the Romans, the Greeks, have a culture of pride and power. And they have this culture of, like, you have things because you take things. And, uh, and, and what's, what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. And so I'm going to, I'm going to beat you to 
the next thing to take what's mine, because if I don't take what's mine, then you're going to take what's mine. And so it's a dog-eat-dog world. And so the Romans and the Greeks, he's like, we can't, we can't think this way. This, this culture is about me first. And he's like, we don't do that here. He's, he, 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 culture, they say culture is what we do around here. This is what we do around here. We don't act that way around here. That's not what the kingdom of heaven is like. I mean, can you imagine, like, this is where Jesus is coming from. He's dealing with these little duck dynasties down here. And, and he's coming from the Trinity. You know what I'm saying? Like, it must, and, and we get upset because our kids in third grade, when we're a teacher, don't, like, listen to us. Like, he's coming from the perfect Trinity, God, Father, Son, who shares everything together. I mean, there's, like, not an asking without receiving between the Trinity. Everything the Father asks for, or everything Jesus asks for, the Father gives to him. And everything the Father commands Jesus, there's only been perfect harmony. There's been no manipulation. There's been no backstabbing. There's been no uh, 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 pretense. There's been no judging. Like, like, like there's only been perfect harmony. And then he comes down with, with these bozo disciples, and, he, and they're like fighting over who's first in line and who raced to the tomb the first and all this stuff. Like, he's like, what is going Like, the place that you're coming from is not like the place I'm coming from. I obviously have not been able to communicate to you yet what this culture is. I'm coming from a place that I'm sent from to go make the place that I'm arrived to like the place that I'm sent from in you. And you following me does not look like the place I'm from. This is not what, what happens in heaven. And he's like, he's like, this is what the, what the Romans do and this is what you're doing. It's that your authority you're using as a privilege and not a responsibility. And, and, and you're using your power to ask the question, what can I get and what do I want, not what do others need and what do others want? This is the critical difference of the whole culture clash that's going on here. He's like, you're using what you have to get what you want. He's like, that's not what the kingdom is about. He says that the, the Gentiles, as soon as they get something, they're like, I earn this. I deserve this. And if people want this, they better come take it from me. And until they take it from me, I'm going to use it against them to benefit me against them. That's the Roman rule. That's the human rule. That's the, that's, the, that's the human philosophy. And he's like, that's not how heaven thinks. That's a human way of thinking. He says, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. You must be a, a doulos is what it's called. A doulos. It means somebody that serves, but not just because of compulsion, because they want to serve. That's what a, that's what a disciple is. It's, it's somebody that loves to obey, loves to follow. And he's like, He's like, the culture that you're, that you're talking about and behaving in, it's nothing like the culture that I'm from. And I'm inviting you to lay your life down, not because I want to take from you, because I want to give to you, I want to free you. I want you to live in the Trinity. I want you to live in the place that I'm coming from. And I'm not going to stop leading you until the place that you're going to looks like the place that I came from. And he's like, he's like you're, the way that, that, that you see your, your possessions and your power to, to make it about you, that didn't come from my father. That came from another father. That came from Caesar. That came from Adam. That came from another place because that's not how we operate in heaven. I had a, a friend who adopted a sweet little girl um, from Haiti. And, um, and you guys know that even in Haiti or in other countries that the process of adopting somebody is a long process. There's a legal process that happens in the beginning, but then there's uh, an emotional process that happens for years afterwards. Um, it, it's a process of, of learning how to get along in the family and it's a process of, uh, uh, of, of learning the new culture. And uh, as a sweet little girl, and, and she learned English really, really quickly. And she um, went to school and, and learned how to do Western school. And, and she learned how to do the, the normal routine along with her other bro brothers and sisters. 
But, but one of the saddest things that I remember the family would talk about, and this is like even months and years after the, the daughter was adopted, um, was that they would find when they would do laundry at the end of the week, uh, pretty much every week, in the, in the jeans pockets of, of the girl, like food stuffed in her pants, the way that she had been brought up. They, they would find that, that when she would have meals at school or at lunch, that she was always afraid that if this meal didn't get saved for the next meal, that maybe the next meal wouldn't come. And, and culturally, the culture of Haiti, more than the language, and more than just, you know, the songs or the dances or, or the, you know, the poetry or whatever it is that culturalizes socially, more than that, spiritually, she had been affected. More than that, spiritually, she had been permeated in, in, in the sense that she, she still believed that there wasn't enough to go around and that the world was not about giving, the world was about taking it. And it would break their heart because, because every couple of months they would look in there and there would still be food, you know, st- stuffed in her jean pockets. But this is how we would act too, if we were brought up in that area and in that culture and in that time. This is how we do act, even though we weren't brought, brought up in those places. Jesus ultimately really isn't picking on just the Romans, is he? He, he really has been reading our mail, is it? hasn't he? Like he, He's been speaking to almost all cultures and all nations and all tribes and all tongues, whether rich or poor, whether or not it was you know, uh, a culture that values a, a silent strength or a culture that values a risky uh, Cowboy strength or, or a culture that says that greatness comes from being uh, calm or a, a culture that comes from being aggressive. Uh, no matter what culture it is, he's not just picking on one country or particular place of a culture. He's picking on the human culture itself. The culture of, of me. The culture of it's about me. The culture of what's in it for me. The culture of how come nobody's checking on me. It's the culture of what's in it for me. It's the culture of like, like what can I get? What are my dreams? What are my goals? Am I being good enough? Am I being strong enough? Am I being funny enough? He's, he's not just picking on one particular place in time. He's picking on all the places in time because wherever there is humans, there is always the culture of, of selfishness without selflessness. And this is what Paul says. This is the way that he describes it in the book of um, Corinthians. This is, this is really, really interesting because uh, it's the passage on milk and meat. But it's really interesting the way that Jesus describes maturity in Christ and what it actually means to use the analogy, if you can follow me, to, to go from a spiritual milk into a spiritual meat. And this is the way that Jesus describes it. He says, or excuse me, Paul describes it. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. Okay? So, so this time, it's not about Rome versus heaven. This time, it's about flesh versus spirit. But it's the same conversation. He's like, he's like it really doesn't matter what culture you grow up in. All cultures are given to the world and given to flesh, except for the ones that have been touched by the Spirit of God. And so there's only polar polar division here. And so he's like, he's like, you're still acting like someone that's never met the spirit. You're still worldly. This is what Paul says. Mere infants in Christ. He says, I gave you milk and not solid food for you were not ready for it. So it gets into this whole thing about milk and meat. He uses it in another passage of scripture as well. But the meat being the more mature thing, he's like, he's like, there isn't a maturity here. And it's really interesting because watch this. He's not saying that meat is a deep theological understanding. Like people will come up to church and be like, hey, uh, church was great and everything, but where's the meat? Like, I really want to see more meat. And by that, they really mean theological depth and complexity and all that kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm saying is that the original intent of what Paul's saying is not that meat is theological prowess. Meat is a different kind of thing. Maturity looks like something else. Coming to die looks like something than just theological understanding. And this is the way that he describes it. He says, you're not ready for solid food. He says, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. You're still like the disciples, fighting over who's going to be best and first and strongest and most beautiful and whatever else and most talented. 
And this is how I know it. This is how I know you're worldly and not mature. This is how I know you haven't been on a meat diet. Not because you don't know the biblical answers, but because of this. You're still quarreling. You're still jealous. You still talk behind each other's back. You still get up, you know, like to try and compete with somebody else to, to, to get your leg and your foot in the door before somebody else. You're still reacting to retribution. You're still justice you know, oriented when you've been given mercy. You're still unforgiving. Like this isn't, maturity isn't I know more stuff. Maturity is I, I've, I, I love more people because Christ loved me. And this is what he's saying. He's like, this is how I know that you are thinking. And this is a really strong statement. Look at this. He says, are you not acting like mere humans? Mere humans? And you're like, Jesus, like, I am a human. Like, aren't I supposed to be a human? Like, you know the phrase, like, I'm only human. I mean, I, everybody makes mistakes. I'm only human. And Paul's saying, according to the Spirit of God, you're not. You're filled with the Spirit of God. You're human and you're divine and you're made in His image. And He's empowered you to put the Spirit inside of you to go from milk to meat. And He's going, and, and, and you're acting like a mere human because the human culture it's, we're not journeying and following Jesus from not knowing doctrine to knowing doctrine. We're following Jesus from selfishness to selflessness, is what he's saying. That milk to meat is the process of me moving to me first, to others first. This is what Paul says about the way that Jesus talks about uh, death and service. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. We're going to use this to look at a landing place for a definition of what this would actually look like. To be a doula, to serve, to be last, to be least. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself is going to be key. Value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. To be a Christian in some ways is to follow from milk to meat. It's to grow in maturity. Maturity isn't just knowing more stuff. It's, it's, it's a journey to surrendering. And this is what it actually means is, is, is to to surrender your stuff to the will of others. That the Gentiles, they use their stuff for what they want. But he's like, that's not how we do it in heaven. That's not what the Father does. That's not what the Son does. That's not what the Spirit does. That would, that you would stick out like a sore thumb in heaven talking like that. That's not what we do. That's not how we do things in heaven. That's not what the culture is like. He's like, we use our stuff to give, not to take. Listen, verse 5. In your relationships with another, have the same mindset of heaven as Christ Jesus who being very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But listen, he used his, he used his equality with God. Listen, he used, this is what it says, he uses the equality of God not to his own advantage, not for himself, but he used the things that he had for others, taking on the nature of a servant. This is the sermon in a sentence here for us as we, as we pull things in. When it is that we're discipled by Rome and culturalized by, by Caesar, by Greek thought, when we're culturalized by human thought, really, this is what the result will always be. We will always be inclined to use what we have to get what we want. It's, it's, it's pretty simple. I think the word servant can be kind of misused sometimes. Servant can be you know, interpreted as being a doormat, being passive, um, just kind of like doing, being a people pleaser, doing whatever. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that. He's not just letting everybody get what they want and do what they want and be permissive and just be good vibes only. What he's saying is that, that conviction looks like compassion and that compassion can't be true without conviction. And conviction in Christ means doing what he does. And so the simple definition that we can look at today is that if we're being discipled by Jesus and not being discipled by Rome, then when we get something, we ask ourselves not what we can use for ourselves, what can I use my stuff to get what I want. The, the, the opposite would be true. Listen, is when we do as Jesus did, we will use what we have to give what others need. 
What, when, we, when we do what the Romans do, we use what we have to get what we want. When we do as Jesus did, we use what we have to give to others what they need. So our intentional question is just so, it's just so short, but I think it's really, really important. And I, and I think it, it could speak to us in a really helpful and practical way. It's just this question, what do others need? I read a, a, a small group book the, the other day, and, and it's, it really has been significant and important as I've been thinking about just the kingdom and ministry and and. and and just where we are as people and what this passage means. And he, he said, what you should do every single time that you, read, you know, lead a small group or really do anything in life, I would, you could probably apply it in lots of different ways, is you want to ask yourself the question, what do the people in my small group need? And it's a simple question, right? And like, okay, we get it. Jesus is a servant. Like, serve. But no, really, like, think about this for a second. Like, what is it that the people in my group need? Because I would argue that typically what happens, let's just say in a small group, and I'll apply it to other things as well. Typically what happens when we're, when we're thinking about leading something or, or, or doing something is not like what do others need. It's more like the question like how will I look? Like when we go and, you know, sing, let's say if you were going to like, um, you know, I, I remember there were times like leading worship on, on worship bands. And the whole thing is you're, you're up there and you're like, really consumed that you really, 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 really don't want to sing off key, right? And nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to get up there and look bad. Nobody wants to do bad. Everybody wants to, to be as great as they can. And ultimately, I think it's, that's the common question, right, that we've been looking at today is like, how can we not mess this up? How can we be great? How can we not be losers? How can we not be lame? And Jesus, Jesus is saying, it comes from the question, not what do you want, but what do others need? And, and this, is, this is the powerful thing, guys, because this is what happens when you start to ask yourself the question. Here's what's going to happen. Just pretend you're, you're leading the small group, right? You're in a small group or you have a group of friends. And you ask yourself, not how am I going to be a great leader, how, how am I going to meet others' needs? Those are two separate questions. And so the question is like, so it's like, okay, so this person over here, you know, and these are totally random, happenstantial, you know, like this person over here, it's like, man, they just don't have a lot of peace, and I just know it. You wouldn't think of it until you asked yourself the question, but, but you would think of it now. Like, you would think, man, what's going on? And so then you realize, like, yeah, they've really mentioned this a few times. And so you write that down. And then the other person, it's like, oh, man, this person, like, they're not, they're not engaged. They're not really talking to people a lot. I don't think that they really feel connected. And you're going, God, what am I going to do? What are we going to do about that? And you go through the line, and you have six or seven people. And the reality is that six or seven people are going to have six or seven different needs, but the, but the reality is, is that if, if I come into that group to lead, to care for that group, and we're just talking about small groups now, and we'll get to other things in a second, but if I come into it with the question, how can I be great, I'm going to lead a different way than the question, what do others need? I think that all too often as fathers, we're, we, we run through guilt, and we think to ourselves, how do we not screw this up? Okay, 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 I know. I got to show up to the practice. I got to do all the things. Remember to buy the flowers on Valentine's Day. I got to do the things and make sure that it's all right. But what do we just see there? What are, what's, the, what's the root word of every single one of those sentences? Me. What am I going to look like? How am I going to do? Am I going to be remembered as a good dad? I don't want to be a bad dad. I got to be a good dad. I want to do my best. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my plan together and really smile when I don't feel like it and, and ask the questions that all the counselors say I should ask and be like the dad that somebody else was. And I'm going to be the great dad because I'm not going to be a loser dad. I'm going to be a great dad. You know, we've never asked the question, what do our kids need? They're telling us what they need. They're constantly telling us what they need. 
And, and we're so consumed with what is it, what's in it for me? How am I going to look? What, what am I going to do to impress and make sure that I don't fail when we, when we host things? I know a lot of times in the South we like to host things and we put a lot of emphasis into the dinner plates and the, and the, and the fancy stuff. And, the, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. I love curtains and tablecloths and matching stuff. That's great. But it's like oftentimes we're more concerned with hosting about how does my house look than what do people need that are coming into my house? Of, of how can I encourage somebody today? How can I listen to somebody's story? If you're a student, I wonder how much the kingdom of God would break into your classroom. If, if, if you, instead of asking, what is it that I can do to get a great grade in this class? I wonder what would happen, literally. If you asked your question, I wonder what my teacher needs. I wonder what my teacher needs in me. I wonder what, what my classmates need. You know, they tell you that the best way to learn a subject is to teach somebody else it. I wonder if that's part of the kingdom program that's built into each and every one of us to test us. Will we come to class asking, what am I going to do to succeed today? Or will we come to class asking, what do we need? As a church, as we think about a property, you know, downtown, as we were speaking about earlier, like as we want to be a church for people, for the property, the question cannot be, how can we be a, a, a great looking church? The question has to be, what does Greenville need? It has to be where are people at? It has to be like, what is the spiritual climate of the people that I say that I care about? It has to be like, what, what are the needs? It, it can't be this ethereal thing that, 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 we, that we charge in. That No, it's like Jesus is saying that, that greatness comes from glory and glory comes from the cup. It comes from suffering. And the, and, and, and the only way that we follow Jesus in his path is to ask the question, not what do I want, but what do others need? I think it's a powerful question. I challenge you to think about it today. I challenge you to think about it in your marriages, in your relationships. Is not how can I be great, but what do others need? I want to invite you guys to stand as we uh, close in worship. And uh, actually, what I would love for us to do today, as uh, Timothy leads us um, in, in just some, some um, initial prayer and kind of worship, is I would love for us to spend some time praying for needs in the room. It says in Acts chapter 2 that one of the things that marked the family of God is that there was no need among them. There is a powerful thing, I think, <clears throat> when the church of God follows, um, follows the Holy Spirit in this promise, that as, as we go to meet each other's needs, as we insist and make it a watermark, a goal, that we would not leave rooms with needs unmet in the church, that this should be a need-free zone. The Trinity is a need-free zone, and it doesn't have to beg, coerce, manipulate, contrive, or threaten. It just asks it asks the Father, it asks the Son, it asks the Spirit. And so participating in that Trinity would mean the question to your neighbor, to your spouse, to somebody near you, uh, as we pray for one another today is ultimately where I'd like to go with this thing. What is it that you need? What can I pray for you for? I think that God loves that question. I think that there's a grace greater than the sum of the parts. I think that if, if two people in this room were to get together in just 30 seconds right now to pray, I think that something would change. I think that people would be encouraged. I think that your needs would be met. I think that other people can be, can, can be met through this prayer. And so I want to challenge us to do that. So what I want us to do as Timothy kind of leads um, is do kind of a ministry moment. We've done this before, but what we're looking for is go to somebody that's near you that uh, maybe God highlights, maybe somebody you know, somebody you don't know. And if you're not comfortable, you're free to just just just... Be present and pray and do whatever it is the Lord would guide you to do. But if you're led to do so, find somebody near you and just ask them, how can I pray for you? And, and, and I just expect that I think that as we do that question, as we, as we ask and, and position ourselves in the place of the servant, not as the Lord, as the master, but as the servant, how can I come along and pray for you? I think it's funny that as, as he helps you lift that person up, I think he lifts us up too. 
And so I just want to spend a little time right before we leave, and I, and I want to practice this a lot, even in groups and, and in all times that we get together as a church, but, but insist that we're a needless group, that we, that we meet needs, that we don't allow needs unmet. This is our, our biblical inheritance. This is our biblical mandate in the book of Acts. Like, we should be a church that doesn't need to beg, strive, or contrive to get things, that we just ask because we're, because we're a family, that we don't need to shove food into our pockets. And so, Jesus, I ask that you would anoint this room with great boldness and courage as we pray for the next three minutes for one another and close in worship. I ask that you would give us courage to share vulnerably about what it is that we really need. To not have to fake it till we make it or have good vibes only. Uh, but, but that we would really bear ourselves to one another and then bear each other's burdens. And so I ask for just a special grace for words when it is that we don't have the words to say. And I ask for a special grace for just a, a wisdom and a safety and understanding. It does take risk. It does take faith to trust in one another, let alone in God. And so as you visit us, God, would you visit us in power? Would you visit us in strength? And I pray that we would be a needless group, that we would be a group that has needs met because we ask. And so I thank you for just your priests, your pastors, your prophets, your apostles in this place that are bringing the culture in heaven through serving and through meeting needs love you, we trust you, and it's our joy to be here in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.